Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. If you want to hear a Brit and a Swede tell you one piece of a chronological journey through Swedish history, then you're in the right place. You are indeed. We're excited to pick up where we left off last time. And speaking of last time, how have you been since we recorded the last episode? I've been great. I've made a cup of tea and I've read two articles in the newspaper. That was our break. Yeah. Um, So here we go. Uh, Before we do our catch up of episode 54, let's jump right into the phrase of the week, which is... Komma upp sig i smöret. Which is a bit of a weird one, I think. It literally means to get oneself up in the butter. Um, I mean, what's that all about? Is it all about getting greasy and buttery and weird and some sort of crazy <laughs> sex game? Yeah, I agree. This is a weird one. It means to get in a favorable position, often financially. So you could say... Now he got that new job, he moved into a really nice part of town. Yeah, he really got himself up in the butter. (laughs) I'm sorry, I have no idea where this comes from or how old it is, uh, unfortunately. But you do hear it now and again in Sweden. That's good. I'll have to listen out for it. And I I like the randomness and the strangeness of it. Um, But where were we last time? Last time was a bit of a long episode, wasn't it? And we saw quite a few changes in political positions, both inside and outside of Sweden. We started off seeing Christopher, the king of Denmark, dying in prison and his kingdom officially collapsing. He was not replaced as king as the nobles from Holstein officially split up Denmark and kept their own counties and duchies for themselves. The main men involved in this act of political vandalism were Counts Gerhard and Johan of Holstein, who have had this on-and-off kind of relationship with each other through this period. In Sweden, Magnus got to celebrate buying all of Skorna from the Germans and being proclaimed king of his third realm. To pay for this expansion, plus his wedding, Eriksgata and coronation, the young king needed money. He increased taxes, created new taxes and took out a lot of loans, including one from the Pope. He also went through a number of different drops, with Gregor's Magnusson being kicked out before being recalled a few years later after the second one, Niels, resigned. There was also time to formally end slavery or thraldom in Sweden, see his sister Euphemia finally marry Albert of Mecklenburg, and prevent a minor skirmish with Novgorod from spiralling out of control thanks to the Treaty of Nuttaboy 2.0. Yes, and that was, of course, where we met the very well-named Prince Gleb. Yes, Gleb Naramont. It was a busy few years for Magnus and Sweden. The royal couple also spent some time together, presumably, as Queen Blanche gave birth to two sons at the end of the episode, called Erik and Håkon. Ooh, and there was that Danish James Bond, Niels Ebbesen, who restored the monarchy in Denmark by murdering Count Gerhard of Holstein and helping to elect Valdemar, son of King Christopher, as the new king of Denmark. So this is where we pick up this time, with Valdemar setting his sights on what appears a ridiculously ambitious goal, reclaiming all the territories the Danish kings used to rule over, 
before they spent all their money on tournaments, beers, and foreign wars, and had to sell it off piece by piece to German counts and Swedish kings. Yeah, I mean, last time was really action-packed, but I thought that was a good summary. And uh, it really feels like we're building up to something uh, conclusive here. As we start the 1340s properly, we see a few more political changes. The first is that Magnus's sister Euphemia, now of course down in Mecklenburg, encourages her brother to grant renewed trading privileges to the Hanseatic cities of Mecklenburg, Rostock and Wismar when trading in Norway. Using your family connections is always handy, I suppose. She literally had a direct line to the king, so might as well try. This, of course, could have been part of the marriage arrangement from the very beginning, so it isn't a surprising development either way. Neither is what happens on the 3rd of January 1341. Magnus formalizes another purchase for Sweden. This time it is South Halland, a historically Danish territory which has remained in German hands for a while now and was a bit of an odd one out. It was the only territory left on the Swedish side of the Öresund Strait that wasn't controlled by Sweden. So the completionist in Magnus probably wanted to get this purchase over the line quickly. And for the tiny sum of 8,000 silver marks as well. In the same year, Hemming Nilsson becomes the Archbishop of Uppsala. He will later travel north and convert some of the Sami and even found a church in Tornil, which is by far the most northern point we've seen so far in the story. In fact, that's right on the current border with Finland, so it's even north by today's standards. It's absolutely the most northern part of Sweden. Also in 1341, Birgitta, Queen Blanche's lady-in-waiting, heads off on a very long trip. Birgitta has become increasingly interested in religion, and one way to show your devotion to your Christianity in the 14th century is to go on an arduous pilgrimage. Birgitta and her husband take out a map of the holy sites of Christianity and start looking for where they should head to. Jerusalem wasn't really an option. The Crusader states had lost every last city and territory in the Holy Land when they lost the island of Ruad back in 1302, so the Middle East wasn't exactly a hospitable place for a pilgrimage. Rome was the other great pilgrimage of Christianity of the age, but for some reason they don't head there. Perhaps it could be that at this time, the popes were residing in Avignon in France instead of Rome, but that's a story for another podcast. Eventually, the couple settle on Galicia, in the northwestern corner of Spain. More specifically, they head to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, in what would later be recognised as an official great pilgrimage by the Pope in the end of the 1400s. So, Birgitta and her husband go on this long pilgrimage to northern Spain. Then she gets a, a few years off work from her boss, which is quite generous. I yeah. They actually went via Trondheim in Norway, a journey that would have taken a very long time in itself. They arrive in Spain, and we'll catch up with them later on in the episode. 
Actually, a good friend of ours, Elise, has actually done this pilgrimage, not as a religious journey, but as a nice walk, because uh, it's become very popular, and uh, walking across the same walk as they did in medieval times is a very popular thing to do in northern Spain. It's in a load of guidebooks and stuff like that, and it's often referred to by its Spanish name as the Camino de Santiago, or in English as the Way of St. James. So uh, if you wanted to reenact part of this podcast's story, then and you can actually do that. Yeah. I mean, maybe don't go all the way from Trondheim to Santiago de Compostela. No, I think the people start in like the east of Spain near Barcelona or something and then walk across and that counts as yeah. it. Or go all the way from Trondheim. I mean, if, if you have a lot of time. Yeah. It's completely up to you, but that is far. It's a very long way, and, and because it's a long way, stuff happens back in Sweden whilst this journey is going on. Apart from a year of pilgrimage, 1341 is also going to be known as the beginning of another conflict with New Denmark, so to speak. Valdemar's Phoenix Kingdom wants to strike back against the Holsteiners quickly, but Sweden gets dragged into the conflict this time as well. Once again, and we don't want to be always seen to be blaming her for things, but it's Ingeboy once again who is in the firing line. Indeed it is, this poor lady. This time, it is because she is actually spending most of her days residing in a castle she owns in Denmark, which she had for quite a while now. She's also been keeping pally with the Holsteiners, and it is these people who Valdemar attacks. He is going to try and take as much of Denmark back by force. For now, he's focusing on the Germans. Valdemar rallies support from a number of Hanseatic League towns, namely Lübeck, Hamburg, Rostock, Wismar, Stralsund and Griefswald. So there's a lot there. These cities are mainly getting involved because they feel like a weak Denmark leaves too much power in Scandinavia to Magnus's kingdoms. And having only one mighty power isn't good for business when compared to having two powers that you can play off against each other for the best economic benefit, which is what the Hanseatic League always wants. Yeah, so for them it's all about the money, unsurprisingly. Ingeborg is involved because of her holdings in Denmark, but Sweden and Ingeborg quickly managed to organise a ceasefire with Valdemar to let him concentrate on fighting the Germans. They can just scoot around Ingeborg's home in Denmark and go and kill the Germans instead. Strangely enough, and unfortunately we don't know why, the fighting picks up again in 1342, and this time the Swedes are much more involved. Probably they've made the decision that they don't want Valdemar to take back too much of Denmark and restore the country to being a big rival once again. On the 26th of June 1342, there's a large battle at Copenhagen where the Swedes and the Holsteiners fight against the Danes and their Hanseatic allies. Unfortunately for Sweden, the battle was a big Danish success. 350 Swedes are captured and many of these are taken all the way back to Lübeck as prisoners. Some sources indicate that at the time of the battle, Copenhagen Castle was actually in Swedish hands because Magnus had bought it for 7,000 mark silver from a knight called von Plessen. But later historians have deemed these sources to be vague at best. Seeing as wars are expensive, 
both in terms of money and men, Magnus spends the time trying to raise more money to re-equip his army and take on the Danes once more. His demands for men, equipment and money aren't received in the best of terms across the country, however. On Gotland, Magnus demands the people pay the Ledungslamme, or the ship's levy. This was where the coastal regions had to pay money or provide ships in times of war. This was one of the things negotiated with the people of Gotland and especially with Visby in the first interactions we saw the Swedish crown have with the island. Now, this is where it gets a bit complicated for the people of Gotland and Visby. Visby is, of course, one of the main Hansa towns, and therefore allied politically, economically and socially with pretty much all of the cities fighting on Valdemar's side. They are, of course, still strongly connected to Sweden, though, and Magnus calls on the town council to pay this tax. At this point, Visby had two mayors, uh, which they had for a long period of time, and the two men serving in 1342 were called Hermann Sverting and Johannes Moop. <laughs> Excellent name. Sounds like a Dutch comedy duo. <laughs> Maybe he's friends with Gleb. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, these two mayors felt like they had to pay the money to Magnus, and so they did, with the support of most of their colleagues on the city council. Hermann had actually been mayor of Visby since 1318, so he must have been a hugely respected figure in the city. He's been top dog there for nearly 25 years. He was the son of a Hanseatic trader who moved to the city from Rostock, so that's a nice little fact, but also means that he has emotional links back to one of the cities who's fighting on Valdemar's side. Unfortunately, Hermann's heritage or his long distinguished service as mayor doesn't do anything to help him through the next few months, though, as paying the tax to Magnus really, and we mean really, annoyed the rest of the German traders in Visby. Yes, the people of Visby grab whatever weapons they have to hand and apprehend the two mayors, along with whatever council members they see fit, and drag them out of their homes, offices, or wherever they happen to be that day, and then behead them. That's quite brutal city council politics, uh, especially for saying someone who works in city council <laughs> politics before. That's that's pretty intense. It really is. I mean, thankfully, Swedish city halls don't see too many beheadings in 2022. But yes, the mayors are executed because they paid this tax to Magnus to fight the Danes and their Hansa allies. Dick Vosse says in his book, Menichonas Visby, The People's Visby, that the council had gotten into a dilemma when making their decision, and you can understand why. If they paid the tax, that would have annoyed the Hanseatic League, who either didn't want a war or were actively fighting against Magnus. But if they didn't pay, the king of Sweden would definitely have taken some sort of retribution against them. Luckily enough, though, executing the mayor and some of the councillors actually seems to brush the problem under the rug, though, at least for Visby as a whole. 
because for other Hansa towns, their honour had been avenged and the pesky mares had been killed. But Magnus had actually already received his money from the tax, so sort of everyone was back to square one, and Visby seems to have been left alone by both sides after this. It's just a bit of, doop, 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 let's forget that. Uh, yeah. Just delete that from the council records. That never happened. And back to trading with everyone again. What happens next in 1342 in the whole scheme of things is unclear, though. Magnus seems to prepare for more battles, but in October, the Hansa cities state that they want to make peace, separately from Valdemar, as the war's getting too costly for them and they don't really see much value in it continuing. It's not being resolved quickly enough for them. So Sweden and the Hansa cities meet up on the 6th of December, but sadly this first meeting leads to nothing and the war is still on. And in fact the war shifts location quite dramatically too as the fighting is spreading. This is because in April 1343 there's a large revolt that takes place against Danish rule in Estonia, something that's been building for a few years by now. Denmark lose control of the situation completely and ask the nearby Livonian order, which is made up of Germans and rule a lot of the area in modern-day Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, and they ask for them to come in to help. The revolt soon picks up steam and not within too long, an Estonian peasant army lays siege on Reval. However, being peasants, they presumably have no experience of siege warfare, so they have a think and then ask the nearest people they can think of for help. Amazingly, they ask the Swedish military commanders of Åbo and Viboy for help. It may be that the Estonian peasants would rather come under Swedish rule than toil under Danish law, some historians have suggested that Swedish law was in some ways better for peasants than Danish or German, so maybe this really was the case. Either way, Sweden has wanted to expand their presence along the south of the Bay of Finland, so the commanders of Elbo and Viboy both jump at the chance to send soldiers to aid the Estonians. Johan Götesson from Viboy arrives first, only to see the Estonian peasant army has already been defeated by a combined Danish-German army at the battles of Kannavare and Söjeme. Having just lost the race over the sea, Don Niklisson arrives from Åbo the following day and teams up with his fellow general. Unfortunately, they uh, have nothing really to team up for, and the two commanders decide that seeing as their only reason for being there, the peasant revolt, is no longer valid, it would make sense to just return home. They'd accomplished nothing, and the tantalising opportunity for Sweden to get a hold in Estonia is lost. Seeing as Sweden was still at war with Denmark at this point, though, it seems a bit strange that the Swedes didn't just try and take the city anyway, but perhaps they were relying on the numbers of the peasants to beef up their forces in the assault or give it at least a little bit of um, help. If that was the case, then there wouldn't have been any point in staying now that the peasants are all dead. It's unclear if the commanders acted on royal command or simply just took the decision themselves when the messengers arrived. However, since Sweden is at war with Denmark, it doesn't really seem to make any difference, at least from our understanding. 
they weren't going on a rogue mission like Stan did with Novgorod in the previous episode. Despite putting down the initial revolt, the Danish position in Estonia is so badly compromised that the people of Reval actually choose to give the city to the Livonian order. Danish rule in Estonia is essentially over, and the Germans spend the next couple of years mopping up remaining Estonian rebels. Yeah, we've uh, covered a very important moment in Estonian history very quickly there, and there's a lot of stuff on this online, and uh, there's even the History of Estonia podcast, which goes into this uh, in more detail. So uh, listen to that if you want to know more about this really interesting story. It's just not super relevant to Sweden that much at this point. After these events, it doesn't take too long before the Hanseatic League and Sweden are back at the negotiating table. On the 17th of July, 1343, maybe through Albert of Mecklenburg and Euphemia acting as mediators, a peace is reached between Sweden and the Hansa cities. Now that the Hansa has pulled out of the war, Valdemar's situation is severely weakened. He is faced with a two-front war, Sweden-Norway to the north and Holstein to the south, and no allies to help him. And so, on the 18th of November, he agrees to a peace treaty with Sweden. Ingeboy is there, she always pops up, uh, because the negotiation is being held at Valboy Castle. The peace ends up being on terms favourable to Sweden. Valdemar acknowledges Magnus's purchase of Skåne, Blekinge and Halland, and it seems like Valdemar's only win in all of this, is that he definitely gets control over Copenhagen Castle, plus being able to claim to be the rightful king of Denmark, which is certainly a plus for him. Indeed, and so this means that Skorna, Blekinger and Halland are now officially part of Sweden, or in Skorna's case, officially an independent kingdom under Magnus. The Danish king has agreed that that's fine. The boundaries are now set. Civil unrest in Norway is also put to rest in the same year. The Norwegian nobility and Magnus finally get to settle on what to do regarding Magnus's relationship with their country, and the two groups agree on something quite interesting to solve the problem. Going against the Norwegian laws of royal inheritance, which was the oldest son gets it all, they agree that Magnus's younger son, Håkon, will become king of Norway, with Magnus as a regent during his minority, which is going to go on for quite a while considering Magnus is just three years old. So they're basically agreeing to split in 17 years or so, as it will ultimately mean that the kingdoms will have separate kings. Prince Eric is inheriting the Swedish throne and Håkon the Norwegian. They just have to wait a bit for the split to happen. Yeah, it's like a proactive split. So Håkon is king of Norway from this moment, but it's actually Magnus that's doing the ruling because he's three years old. So they have to wait for Håkon to reach the age of maturity in Norway, which is 20. And then Håkon just walks away from his dad, says bye, and walks away with his new kingdom. So that's pretty uh, intense solution to this problem that the Norwegians hate. Magnus always uh, treating them as the lower rung of the ladder in the terms of the Scandinavian kingdoms. Yeah. 
I guess the Norwegian nobles felt that by having their own king who was independent, they would obviously then become priority number one again. If they hadn't have agreed this change, it would have been Magnus's son Eric who would have inherited both kingdoms, and they would have just been stuck in the same position again, with Sweden presumably being favoured by the next king as the more important of the two kingdoms. And this would have come to the detriment of Norwegian interests, and of course to the positions of those nobles themselves who wouldn't have had as an important position in the country. To further emphasize this split, Prince Erik is then proclaimed to be the formal heir to the Swedish throne. Now, whilst this has usually always been the case in practice, the Swedish law says that the king is elected. There is nothing written down about heirs to the throne or that the king's sons inherit the thrones when their fathers die. So this is also going against tradition to a certain extent, albeit slightly less dramatically than in Norway. There doesn't seem to be any real protest against this move, for example. This is also slightly different to Norway, where Magnus will cease being the ruler as soon as his son comes of age, whereas he will still be king of Sweden until he dies. Uh, Eric doesn't just become king of Sweden just because he reaches uh, 15. Yes, important difference to mention. Now, 1344 rolls around and there is peace between Magnus's realms and Denmark, just in time for Stockholm to burn down again. Returning to Sweden just in time to see this is Birgitta and her husband. Unfortunately for the couple, Birgitta's husband got severely ill on the journey. Birgitta had a vision of St. Denis of Paris on the way home, who assured them that he would not die on the pilgrimage. When they made it home to Sweden, they were probably happy that Birgitta's husband had survived the trip, but it was there that his luck ran out, and he died shortly after their return. Still, I mean, technically the vision was correct. Yeah, he didn't die on the pilgrimage, they got home. So, <laughs> check in the religious vision uh, accuracy box. And after this loss, Birgitta felt a change in her calling in life. She decided to become a member of the Third Order of St. Francis and devoted herself to a life of prayer and caring for the poor and the sick. She was already very religious, but the pilgrimage and the vision and her husband dying really seems to have uh, kicked it into overdrive, and we'll check in with her a little bit later on. Now, perhaps in response to Stockholm burning down, or probably just because he can never have enough money, Magnus once again borrows the church tax tithes for himself, and he's obviously still desperate for money to do something like this. Someone who isn't desperate for money, though, is Valdemar. It is this year that King Valdemar recovers the area of North Friesland in Denmark, which he immediately taxes the peasants to pay off the debt on southern Jutland, which was around 7,000 marks. So he's systematically getting new parts of Denmark one at a time from the Germans, then taxing them to get the next one. It's like a snowball where he's taking one area at a time. With this tactic, Valdemar was able to capture or buy other castles and fortresses until he could force the Holsteiners out altogether. For example, when he ran out of money, he took Colomboy and Serboy castles by force instead. 
Seeing an opportunity out east with the advance of the Livonian order, he leaves Denmark in the middle of his campaign to retake these two castles and instead travels to Estonia. There, he personally negotiates with the Teutonic Knights to give them official control of the territory and sign away Danish claims to Estonia. With the deal quickly signed, Valdemar heads back to Denmark 19,000 marks richer. So that's paid off all the money he has spent recently and gives him some left to help spend on taking back even more of Denmark. It's amazing, really, taking the softly, softly approach and using money, politics and force in various degrees definitely seems to be working. In just a few years, Valdemar has rebuilt almost all of Denmark, the country rising out of the ashes. Skorna is the obvious exception to this, as that county has been officially given over to Sweden, but it won't be too long before Valdemar starts thinking about this area too but that's perhaps just some foreshadowing of what's in Valdemar's mind. The next few years go by rather peacefully for everyone involved, and Magnus can concentrate on some domestic issues once again. He starts in 1345 with something called the Statue of Telga, which concerns knightly service. Magnus felt the need to start regulating the code of conduct regarding battles and the wartime duties of his knights and his regular troops. For example, when it was time to head into battle, desertion from under the royal banner, avoiding service of the king, his officials or other military leaders was punishable by death if the king was unwilling to show mercy, which you can imagine he was quite often. If the deserter managed to escape capture or punishment, then he was outlawed, whilst a jury of 12 men was to decide on these matters in a form of military tribunal. This was another one of these laws or treaties that seemed to set a precedent as it was reissued way in the future in 1448. Yeah, we're really seeing how some of the developments in this period are laying the foundation for some parts of Swedish life and foreign policy and internal politics. The following year, in 1346, the king and queen give land to Vardstena Abbey, which is still just an idea in the planning stage at this point, so they're giving them the land ready to start building on. Some historians suggest that this is done because religious people, such as Birgitta, are becoming more sceptical and critical of the king's reign, so what better way to get the church on side than to give them some donations? After all, Magnus has borrowed a lot of the church's money recently, so he's probably had some patching up of the relationship to do. More religious developments happened the same year, some which might be seen as quite administrative. For example, the border between the Diocese of Uppsala and the Diocese of Åbo over in Finland is set between the Kakama and Kemi rivers. Uh, these are right at the top of the Bay of Bothnia, so we can see that at least a religious part of Swedish state rule is really heading up where it reaches, I mean, modern-day Sweden. As part of this strengthening of religious administration in the far north of Sweden, the Archbishop of Uppsala heads to the same region, 
after all, it is an area that is officially his. When there, he supposedly converts and baptizes some 20 Sami and Karelians in the Tornio area. There's no information on how this happens or if these people even wanted to be Christians, so we'll just have to take this as face value for the moment. It's time for a new year and a new law. 1347 is the year that Magnus forbade people in the Copper Mountain Mine area from carrying weapons apart from knives for eating. This was where the mining masters were allowed to carry swords and shields, but only allowed to be fully armed during an uprising. And there was much more information on all of this sort of thing back in episode 50, where we talked about a few things that would uh, turn up in the future, such as this, uh, so to speak, when we looked at the Copper Mountain Mine. Now, we're about to reach a very, very congested part of the timeline with developments all over the place. So this is probably going to be a good point to wind down this narrative and get back to it next time. That is because right now we start seeing semi-believable mentions of a Novgorodian attack on Swedish territory. Whether or not these are true, in 1347, figures from all walks of life of Sweden start agitating for a crusade on Novgorod, one last big offensive against the enemies of Catholicism. These include leading political figures in Sweden and Birgitta, a key person in pushing the religious narrative of the divide. Historians such as M.C. Paul note the political and economic side to this conflict between Sweden and Novgorod, but insist that it's going to be mainly a religious conflict. The chronicles of the time don't mention politics or economics, but constantly reference religious aspects of the hostilities and religious figures such as Birgitta agitating for a new crusade. This war starts, spoilers, as a result of a specific religious confrontation or challenge by Magnus, but we'll get to that in a future episode, because at the same time as this huge conflict that's about to erupt, one of the most famous events in history is about to reach Sweden. Yes, in June of 1348, a boat arrives in Weymouth in England from Gascony in France, a sailor on this journey is carrying a few things with him. Presumably, he has something to trade and some supplies, but he also brings with him something much more sinister. The Black Death. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. And this is the first case of the Black Death in England, and within a year it will have spread to Magnus's territory in Norway and from there on to Sweden. This will have devastating consequences on the people of Sweden and Norway, the economic life, political life, social life, and even the military plans of everyone involved in these two countries. It will have a religious side too, of course, and impact everything and everyone across Magnus's realms. We'll return in two episodes' time to talk about how this affects Magnus specifically and Sweden as a whole and the ongoing situation with Novgorod, but for next time we're going to look into the Black Death in Sweden and Norway in particular. Yeah, there is just so much stuff to cover now, it's getting very intense. Thank you all for listening to this episode, and like Chris just said, we'll see you next time 
for the Black Death. Before we go, we've had another review on iTunes, this time from DanH1214. And it says, Great listen. I'm on episode 28 and love the show. Your pod gives me exactly the right amount of history with so witty comments to make the pod seem like a conversation instead of a monologue. I'm trying to learn how to speak Swedish, so the sayings at the beginning help. Again, great job, Dan from Wisconsin. So thank you, Dan, very much for that. That's an excellent review. We love it. And lycka till med din svenska. Yeah, thank you very much. Lycka till. If you want to, send us a message on our social media channels or via email or visit our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. In the meantime, it's just time to say goodbye from us. Hej då!